Let's do it. Hello, my friends. My name's Kevin. I'm a husband, I'm a dad, and I'm a chaplain. I want to say thank you to JP and to uh, Evan, Dan G, Mary, especially to Art and the sound booth, who is all these folks have been working behind the scenes to make this such a meaningful experience for all of us. So I want to say thank you to them. And before we turn to Jonah, I'd like to begin by hearing from Psalm 23. My hunch is that Jonah knew this psalm. Besides, it's always been meaningful, and I think especially when we're in isolated seasons like now. Let's hear from Psalm 23. Well, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil and my cup just overflows. Surely, surely, goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like many of you, uh, I grew up hearing about Jonah. Uh, I grew up in the 80s in a church in Melbourne, Florida, and we did vacation Bible school. So I don't know if you ever had that experience, but I had a lot of vacation Bible school. And one year what they did was, is they recreated this massive fish structure outside. So what they did is they took these black tarps and uh, they somehow stitched them together and they put it outside in the lawn and it was about 20 feet wide. It was about 30, it felt like 40 feet long and it was about 15 feet high and it was dark. Uh, a couple of people at the church had taken a few, uh, it's like ceiling fans or just fans on the side of the walls of the fish and they had them on constantly so you felt like you were inside a fish in the cold water and a few people had like this Windex spray, like a water pistol or something, and every once in a while they'd spray it and the, the mist would kind of hit you. And I remember sitting there at the feet of my teacher when she told us, this is what happens when you don't obey the Lord. <laughs> um, you might have had stories about Jonah uh, long before Veggie Tales. Um, there's other ways we told stories. There's other ways we told, we told Bible stories, and I want to share with you a way that I learned a story. You know, back in the day, um, they had this thing called flannel graph. Uh, flannel graph was the way that we learned in Bible school. It was like, this was it, and if you didn't do it, you know, <laughs> what were you doing? Um, I remember the first time I saw Jonah story on a flannel graph, and they would take these items. Of course, we already heard about in Jonah chapter 1, and you heard the story about these sailors on a boat, and Jonah is with them, and there is this awful storm that builds. And so if you were there, you got to think, oh man, surely there were waves 
that just came crashing by. And so they would use this flannel graph and this felt tip would just stick like it was magic. It was, it was a magical experience, flannel graph. And then we, of course, not only did you hear about the waves in the story, but of course, Jonah, and I don't know why they did this, but they only gave half of his body because he's floating on top of the water. But Jonah, of course, gets jettisoned, or he says, you know, throw me in. And they say, oh, I don't know about that, but it happens anyway. And of course, God sends a great fish. And Flannelgraph, for whatever reason, they made a whale. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Florida by SeaWorld. I knew the difference between a fish and a whale. But for someone back in the curriculum days, they decided, no, it needs to be a whale like the one you'd see around America. But this is how I learned it. It was this flannelgraph experience, and it opened up these doors to making the pages and the words of the Bible just, just leaping off. Instead of imaginative, they helped you explore it in ways that you never really could see before. And last, or two weeks ago, it seemed, uh, Jonah's story where Evan talks about that Hebrew word for the great fish, uh, Evan talked about how you could actually pronounce it as a dog. <laughs> so we have a dog, uh, Evan, representing uh, the Hebrew word here for the fish. But ultimately, you know, the whole point here was that Jonah wasn't supposed to go to Tarshish. Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh. And that's what I think about. I want you to consider the ways that you've heard Jonah as a kid, or maybe as an adult for the first time. And I want us to sort of maybe unlearn a little bit of the traditional stories that we thought of, because what we just looked at is only really half the story. That's just the first two chapters. In fact, the great fish that we just heard about, that we know, that is the, that's the thing we usually think about the most, is this fish story. It's only in a couple of verses. And when we turn the page here in a moment we're going to see a whole lot more about this story. So even though these stories bring back a lot of nostalgia, they're really only a small part of the Jonah story. The fish alone is barely mentioned, and we're wondering what could possibly happen after that. So let's turn to that. Let's turn to Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Let's hear these words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Well, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. Now, your scripture might be translated where it says exceedingly large. That's the idea. That it was a large, massive city that Nineveh was. And it took three days alone just to go through it. Verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey in the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, they put on, they put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached even the king of Nineveh, he, the king rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, and he covered himself with sackcloth. And Scripture says, and he sat in the dust. He sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation 
that that king in Nineveh issued by the decree of the king and his nobles. You can almost hear a trumpet played at the beginning of that. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, it taste anything. Don't let them eat. Don't let them drink. But let people and animals, how did the animals get brought into this? But they were, animals be covered with sackcloth with the, with the people. Let everyone call urgently on God. Sounds like a Jeremiah or a Second Chronicles passage that we've heard before. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Because who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And then when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. God relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? O God of all nations and all people, God, these past few weeks, we've journeyed with our brother Jonah towards Tarshish. We've prayed with him as he went down, down into the depths with the great fish. And now, God, we walk with him on dry ground onto the unpredictable road to Nineveh. God, this scripture, it's like, it's like a mirror that if we have eyes to see, it might challenge how we see ourselves, how we see our neighbors, how we see the Ninevehs of our lives, and maybe even, God, also how we might see you. So towards that end, God, I pray that you will pour through me the gift of preaching that we might be formed more into the image of Jesus. And we echo his prayer that he shared long ago, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven our trespassers. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 24 years ago, I spent a summer in Houston, Texas. It was the first summer after my college year, and I was a ministry intern, and I was 19. I was full of ideas. I thought they were good ideas. Uh, I was full of ideas, and I was excited to try some ministry out. I was an intern. And there was a senior in high school at our church. His name was Brad, and Brad was an excellent golfer, okay? Now, I've played mini golf many times, probably like most of you, and I'm pretty good at mini golf. Uh, if I'm your guy, if you've got a clown face and you need to put that ball right in the number one or number two or number three or number four, whatever it is, I'm pretty good at that stuff. But the thing about mini golf compared to regular golf is you got to use all the clubs, right? Not just a, a putter. And so I reluctantly said yes, because I wanted to connect. And this guy, Brad, his dad was one of the elders too. So I was like, oh, I better do this, right? It's a, I want to be on the good side. So we went and met at a golf course. He arranged the tee time and we check in, we go to the tee box and Brad says, I'll go first. I'm like, thank you. So he goes there, he gets out that driver club takes a practice swing, and just nails that first shot. It's at least 200 yards, straight as an arrow, 
right down the fairway. And I hear someone on the side, one of the senior golfers, they kind of clap and says, oh, that's a good shot. Nice. Well done. Well done. So I'm thinking, okay, I got to follow this guy. So I go up there and I I grab the driver club and I sheepishly walk to the tee box and I grab a Titleist ball because Tiger Woods always used Titleist or Nike, one of those. So if he did, it was good for me. So I grab a Titleist and I put it on the tee and I realize I need to take some practice wings because I'm not ready. And I look up and there's a four-person golf group waiting for me to finish and they're starting to get a little annoyed because I'm taking a while. So I realize I need to take my shot, but I don't want to mess this up. And my palms are getting sweaty and my heartbeat is starting to race. And I'm realizing I'm right here in front of everybody in the clubhouse and I don't want to be here. And I take my club and I get oriented to the ball, square my shoulders, and I swing so hard and I completely miss the ball. (laughs) Completely with the ball. And they chuckle on the side, and Brad goes, hey, it's okay, it's okay. You know, you didn't hit it, but it doesn't count against you. You didn't hit it. It doesn't really count. It's okay. Just do it again. I'm like, okay. And so I kind of try to recompose myself. I'm like, what are the chances that happened in twice, right? So I orient myself, and I take that practice swing, and here I go. And this time, boom, I hit it but I slice it so hard to the right that it goes to the 18th hole and there's a golfer who's finishing <laughs> and Brad yells, four! And I'm like, I was so embarrassed and paralyzed by my shame that I didn't even know to say the right golf phrase. And it's at that point, Brad comes up to me and he says, do you know what a mulligan is? And I said, uh, yeah, I've heard of that. And he said, it's a free do-over. It's, it's like you get an extra shot, and it's great because you just totally biffed it. <laughs> I think that Jonah 3 is like a mulligan. I think that he is getting his extra shot, his do-over chance, what he should have done in chapter 1. Evan walked us through the first two chapters, and if you recall... It's that same divine call from God to Jonah that's repeated. Chapter 1, the beginning, and chapter 3, it's an echo, the same. It's the phrase, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Have you ever benefited from having a second shot at something? I bet you have. I know I have. Have you ever, when you were like a little kid, Do you ever take somebody's toy or shove your brother or sister to the ground and you got caught by your parent and later on you had to make it right and it got better? As a student, have you ever failed a test and your teacher said, I'm going to let you retake that. This is a freebie. You ever benefited from something like that? Have you ever been on a sports team and it was your turn at the plate and your team needed you, but you struck out? But later in the game, or maybe the next game, you made that play. You ever benefited from a second chance? Have you ever put something on social media or texted something that seemed you thought was right at the time, 
and then it kind of got messed up, and later on you're able to edit or fix it or maybe just delete it. You ever benefited from a second chance? I think Jonah totally benefits from the second chance, and I think that we do too. Um, When I think about these situations where we need the mulligans, I guess what I'm saying is, have you ever sailed towards Tarshish when you should have gone to Nineveh? Because the good news is that God offers us a mulligan, even though we've run away. God offers us a mulligan even though we've run away. But we are called after that, we are called again to go, but not just to go. Because Jonah's story about going somewhere has a very certain place in mind. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to the message I give you. And this time Jonah obeyed the Lord and he went to Nineveh. You ever wonder what kind of a place Nineveh was? What was that city like? Did it look like the one on the flannel graph, or was it something much more imaginative and and larger than life? And why on earth would Jonah have dodged that city? Well, let's think about Nineveh just for a little bit. There's a lot in history that we can learn. Uh, First of all, Nineveh was a great city, particularly in numbers. It was massive in size. Uh, Your scripture probably says the word great in it. In fact, the word great in Jonah is used 15 times, and it's used a few times here to talk about Nineveh. So it's a massive city. It's large in size. Um, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire in 722 BCE came and totally destroyed the northern tribes of Israel. I think Jonah might have been afraid to go to that capital city. Ninevites also took over cities like Lachish, which was a major strategy point. If Lachish fell in the land of Israel, then Jerusalem was probably going to go next. There are pictures and um, reliefs that they have in history that show the destruction of Lachish and other cities like that. And what they showed was the Syrians from Nineveh dragged away the people with hooks hooks on their faces at different spots, just torturing people, just barbaric in the most gruesome of ways. So Nineveh was that enemy up north. It was that enemy that had, they had a different value system. They talked differently than people of Israel did. They were a religious city, but not in the same kind of religious way. They were very polytheistic. They were known for their violence, The king even said that. we got to turn away from our violence. They were known for their violence to the point that Nineveh made Sodom and Gomorrah not look so bad, apparently. Nineveh was a rough, rough and scary, intimidating place. And I think maybe most of all, if Israel was the us, Nineveh was the them. There's a real us and them kind of tension that's going on in Jonah's story that's not explicitly said, but really that's kind of what's happening here. Israel's an us, Jonah's an us, and Nineveh, that's them. Nineveh is also a city. Nineveh is a city in a way that Tarshish is not. See, when Jonah 
went, he dreamed about going to some distant shores far, far away. See, when you go to Nineveh, what you get in the city is you get dirt. And you get rough, raw people who don't think like you. When you go to Tarshish, you sail. You go to this distant land that's the green, pastures are just so green, it makes your present situation just seem like it's in the rearview mirror. And you think about big ideas and opportunities and big goals, and that's Tarshish. And Tarshish was kind of off the map, but Nineveh, Nineveh's on the map, and it's not too terribly far away from where Jonah was. Um, Nineveh also has a certain kind of locale. It's got a context, you know, like every city does. I'll never forget when Jenny and I and the kids first came to Poway, and I remember the signs, Poway, the city in the country. I love that. I love what that's saying. Uh, every city has its things like that. San Diego's got a feel to it. Las Vegas has got a feel to it. All the cities that we think of in the world, they have a feel to it. And guess what? So did Nineveh. And it was a strong distaste for Jonah. And he really, really didn't want to go there. But he does go to Nineveh. He does go to Nineveh. And I think now, and I want to emphasize this point, I think now more than ever, the worldwide church needs to be more in Nineveh than dreaming about Tarshish. We really don't want to go to Nineveh. We really want to go to Tarshish. And I think we also need to, you know, when you think about Nineveh, we think, so, what's, so what is that city today? What is Nineveh today? And we try to guess at, oh, it's, it's New Orleans at Mardi Gras, or it's, you know, you fill in the blank. And I think when we do that, it's just kind of trivial speculation, because honestly, if we do that, we miss the point. Because Nineveh is, the idea of Nineveh is so much more than the city. What is Nineveh? Nineveh is that person or people, it's that whoever kind of people that represents to you the rivals, the outsiders, the enemy, the people who are in my way, the them to my us. That's what Nineveh is. So I want to ask a question to you today. Who is your Nineveh? Nineveh represents the face of that person that makes your stomach churn. Or maybe it's that person that ignites your anger or your distaste. Nineveh is the person that does not vote like you. Ninevites are people that have a different way of viewing the world. They see creation differently and they see scripture differently than us. Nineveh is the person or people that you consider avoiding in life. Or maybe Nineveh is the kind of people that we sometimes mock when we're watching our favorite news-breaking television shows. The challenge is, is that Nineveh is not the same people for all of us. What I mean is, is that your Nineveh might not be my Nineveh, and my Nineveh may not be your struggle. But all of us do. We all got a Nineveh or maybe a few Ninevehs in our life. And I think part of the hard work today we have to do in Jonah 3 is to begin to wrestle with that is who is my Nineveh in my life? And maybe come to terms with that. 
Let me give you a few suggestions. If you vote Democrat, then Nineveh might be Republicans to you. <laughs> if you vote Republican, then Democrats might be Nineveh for you. If you have a certain race or ethnicity, and it's possible you might struggle with how do you view someone of another race that might be affected. If you grew up in a male-centered household, then Nineveh could be the struggle with how you see females. If you've never known someone who is LGBTQ, then that might be Nineveh for you. And so here's where we must ask ourselves, like Jonah, what is going on inside our hearts towards the Ninevehs of our world? Because the bottom line is that God's grace sent Jonah to Nineveh to demonstrate his love for all people. All people. So who's your Nineveh? When Jonah went inside the city, he preached a very, very short sermon. In fact, in the Hebrew language, it's only five words in, in the Hebrew. Uh, it's so short. Um, in verse 4, it reads, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on that sackcloth. And one of the shortest sermons I've ever heard, <laughs> what's fascinating is that Jonah's his prophetic ministry is so different compared to all the, other pro- all the other prophets in the Bible. Sometime you ought to go back to those dark corners of the Bible we don't often look at too much and just look at Amos. Take a listen to Micah and Obadiah and Nahum. I'll tell you what you'll usually see is you'll see pages and pages and pages of God's message, of God's divine accusation to the nations to say, hey, you got to wake up. Some of them sound things like, hey, for three sins, yay, for four, Israel or Judah or Ammon or Edom or Moab. And there are pages in those prophets of prophetic sermons. But in Jonah, there's one short phrase, one short phrase. Sometimes the other prophets say things like Habakkuk, where he says, oh God, how long? How long, God, till you act? I'm, I'm waiting. You ever asked that question recently? How long? Or maybe it's like Ezekiel where he, his eyes look up and he sees God's presence departing from God's people. Oh, the prophets have words to tell us and Jonah's words are super short. We, if we blink or don't pay attention for a second, we miss it. So out of obedience, he says this phrase, and he goes into the city. I want to underline that part in the Bible, if you could, into the city. One of the most important things about Jonah, and what's fascinating to me really, is that location and uh, direction are really important for Jonah's story. Jonah 1, he goes west. In fact, he goes away, right? Away and west. Jonah 2, he goes down, 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 down with the fish until his eyes look up. Jonah 3, he goes to Nineveh, but into the city. And then next week, they're going to look at how Jonah goes outside the city walls. But in Jonah 3, he goes inside the city. And what happens there? What happens there? Well, it's actually kind of funny. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. Those 
violent pagans, those violent pagans, they actually repented. They repented pretty quickly too. In fact, before even the king gets to make his royal proclamation, the people of Nineveh have already started this grassroots movement to say, we need to turn around. We are not acting right. And the king does eventually give this decree that by then we're already, uh, we, we already know what's going to be happening for the people. And so the king gives this decree. And by the way, aren't we pretty familiar lately in our states and national scope right now about decrees? <laughs> None shall pass. You cannot go here. You can't go there. That's kind of what a decree looks like, all right, in one way. And the king of Nineveh says, I got a decree for you, and it's people and animals. Now, that's strange. Why not just the people? It's fascinating how they brought together all of the components, really, of God's creation into this. It's really like the wild beasts and the human beings of Genesis 1 are being called back to say, turn to God, and we're all in this together. It's a funny image to try to put sackcloth on a cow, (laughs) but that's apparently what was going on there. That's apparently what was happening there. So he gives them uh, this decree, and then he continues on uh, in verse 9. After that, he says, who knows, you know, God actually may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. He has faith that something might happen. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and God did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. When God saw what they did, and I want to zoom in on this, when God saw what they did, okay, and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented. So what I want to say is, here's what's happening here, is that Nineveh affected God. Now, we would, not, we would love to not think that, but Nineveh affected God. And God listened, and God responded. Nineveh, we would like to kind of be like, you know, there's a lot of distance between us and God. Uh, we just kind of want to wipe our hands with them, right? But out of their actions... In their repentance, God responded to it. And that's not actually the only time in Scripture that's happened. There's other times in Scripture, these themes of when someone does something and they, they acknowledge, they cry out to God. It happens in different ways. You look at uh, the Exodus story, and I know it's the Israelites, but there and they cry out. And the Exodus story says that God heard their cries And what do you know? Here comes Moses soon after that. Or the Judges story. We don't look at the Judges too much unless we want to get fascinated with battles. But in the Judges story, it's cycle after cycle after cycle of people messing up but saying, you know what? We need the Lord. And God responds to that. And He actually comes in and saves them. And Jesus, even a few times in Scripture, He's interacting with people and someone demonstrates a little bit of faith. And he says, wow, I've not seen faith quite like this. That's, that's a paraphrase. See, we're used to hearing about God's people when we need forgiveness and uh, how God will relent. 
But here, it's Nineveh. And God responded to them. God actually changes what he was about to do. Now, I'm not saying that God's nature in God's nature himself is suddenly metamorphosizing something totally different. What I'm saying is that God does respond to creation. I believe that. Genesis 2 is another account of creation, and it's Adam and Eve, and God is like walking with them. God is in the midst of the garden, and God has this dialogue and interaction. We serve a God who relates to humanity, and I think that's good news, and that's good news for Nineveh. So if God is on board with demonstrating compassion towards our Ninevehs, I think the question is, is Jonah? And maybe more importantly for us, are we? Would you pray with me? Oh God of the seas, of the dry land and the sky, God, when Jonah turned to run from you, you showed him that nothing and no one could hide from your presence. God, you're in all things and you love all things, even Nineveh. So God, show us your presence, the gift of your presence, and help us to carry your word of compassion to all the world, even to the Ninevehs. Amen. My friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to all of you. The Lord turn his face to you, to all of us and to Nineveh, and give us peace. Amen.